up on this week's show, more Atari VCS controversy. Your chance to own the rarest gaming system ever. And we talk to the man who launched the Mega Drive, Michael Katz. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 194. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome along to this week's show. Now, it does kind of feel like you've walked into the middle of a doctor's waiting room, the amount of coughing and spluttering that we've just done before we started recording. It's getting that time of year, isn't it? We've got the man flu. We've all got the man flu. I think I've been hit the worst. Do you reckon? So, yeah, I reckon so. Definitely, 100%. Ambulance is on standby. Yeah, I'm the most manly here, so the flu has hit me. <laughs> the manliest. And Ravi had it last week. He's all right now. Yeah, yeah, we'll see if it comes back. <laughs> We're going to mutate it and give you a back. Uh, but, I mean, we have had an incredible week. We're still kind of getting over how incredible last weekend was, really, because we did an event that was really nice because it was in our hometown. Mm. I could literally get up 10 minutes before it started. Actually, 10 minutes after it started. I was, like, getting there, admittedly. <laughs> um, but this was the Retro Gaming Fair in Nottingham. Now, we went down not really knowing what to expect because it's the first of its kind in yeah. our hometown of Nottingham. And what a turnout. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, we lost Ravi in the crowds yeah. and just kind of had to follow his voice and his waving arms of him making dodgy deals for CD, CD32 games. <laughs> yep. uh, but it was incredible to see how busy it was and that there is actually a retro gaming population alive in Nottingham. Well, um, we got in early, didn't we? And yeah. we were walking around and, you know, it's like, oh, this is pleasant. There's a few people here. And then the guy who's organising it just ran out and goes, the queue's outside. And when they started letting people in, it got really busy. I think they had 200 queuing outside. Well, they had to open amazing. it half an hour early because it was yeah. that busy outside, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, Matt and Steve, the guys who um, we spoke to, who, who helped organise this event, I mean, they did an incredible job. Huge and, success. Yeah, hopefully it'll be back next year and we'll be back there again. So if you did come down to me, we met so many listeners there as well that blew my mind. Yeah, How many listeners really are, nice. In our hometown, it? we've got loads of listeners, which is crazy. Now, speaking of events, when the show comes out... You and I, Ravi, will be on a, a plane heading to Deutschland. Yes, we'll be going to Amiga Germany 34. Can you believe they're still doing Amiga shows? And this one is crazy because it's nearly a 1,000 people. You went last year, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, oh my God, I absolutely love it. Really good show. Dan's never been to an Amiga show, <laughs> even the ones with four people. Yeah. So you're going to love this. <laughs> yeah, you were... Um... You looked a bit green when you got back, though. It was a Pilsner was on tap, I think you told oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> you, you do just drink all weekend. But there's also another weekend uh, where everybody's going to be drinking, and that is Play Blackpool. Oh, it's got to be done in Blackpool. 80p a pint, you can't say no, can you? Let's be honest. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, because we, we said we'd go to Amiga Germany probably about a year ago, and it kind of we didn't realise the dates were going to clash. You have to book ahead as well yeah. for that. Yeah. So, I mean, it did turn out that this is actually the first Play Expo we've missed in about, what, over three years now? So, unfortunately, we're not going to be there this weekend. But, I mean, a lot of people come along to check out the talks that we normally do. Luckily, they are going to be taken care of by someone who will probably do a better job than us, let's be honest. Well, the guys at Retro and Lim. Now Retro and Lim, yeah. They've got Ian Lee, who's yeah. hosting one of the panels. Uh Actual Good Morning Britain host. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Tim Follin as well, the composer that... You know, you hardly ever hear yeah. Tim Follin speaking, so this is just fantastic to see him live out there. Sean Southern as well, Andrew Morris. Magnetic yeah. Fields panel they're going to be doing. Platonic one as well. I'm really 
Can't wait to catch this on uh, Retro and Limbs channel. Yeah, they do a really good job of filming them all and putting them up. So, uh, yeah, if you can't make it along this weekend, I'm sure they'll all be up there as well. If you are going to play Expo Blackpool, have an amazing time. Have a pint for us. And if you are coming along to Amiga Germany, we will see you there this weekend. And actually, we've got loads more events coming up. Normally, we're like well over for the year, but actually, there's a load more coming up this year. So, you want to check them out on our website, theretrohour.com. Click on the events section and you'll see them all in there. And actually, our website is the same place you can go if you'd like to help out with the running of this show. Now, every week, Joe gets really starstruck. When we talk about the Hall of Fame, he's like, rolling out that red carpet, these VIPs, because without these people, we couldn't do this podcast every week. Have you figured out how to get in the Hall of Fame yet, Joe? Um, yeah, so you go onto our website. Yeah, what, what's the address? Retrohour.com. That's the one. And you go onto supporters. Yep. And then you can make a donation, whether that be small or large, which goes into the running of the show. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. You, you've been rehearsing that, haven't you? <laughs> no, I haven't actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's essentially it though now. This show couldn't have been going for almost four years without your support. So a big thank you this week to our supporters, Raymond Montalban. Matthew Martin. Kevin Lear. And Steve Arnott, who all made donations into the running of the show, and you find yourself in the Hall of Fame. If you'd like to do the same, and we'll give you mention in a future episode, nip onto our website at theretrohour.com. Now, you know, we talk about loads of systems on here that are like rare prototypes. Yeah. We know we're talking about that Ultra 64 controller the yeah. other week. It's cool when stuff like that surfaces, yeah. but you never expect to get a chance to actually own one of them. Yeah, so as an owner of the Nintendo PlayStation myself, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, this is the rarest of the rare. Your chance to own the Nintendo PlayStation. Now, I'm sure we don't need to recap the story, but really briefly, this was when Nintendo and Sony worked together before the PlayStation came out. It was kind of going to be a Super Nintendo with a CD-ROM drive, wasn't it? And then, a couple of years ago, a guy found one in his attic. So I think his dad worked at Nintendo. No, no, he bought it at an auction. Did he? They, they, okay. Yeah, they bought it at an auction, yeah. which was kind of a sell-off of right. uh, goods, and that was randomly there. From a guy that worked at yeah. Nintendo. So they do yeah. have a receipt for it, so that probably means that they can actually sell it on, rather than it Legally. being like Nintendo's property <laughs> right. yeah. or Sony's yeah. property. That's yeah. a good point. Can you imagine if they sell it on Nintendo? Actually, we own that. Yeah. <laughs> so now... So the guy's name's Terry Diebold. Yeah. And he's come forward, and he wants to sell it off, he wants to auction it off. I, I, I'm going to pose a question because I've, I've, I've been told certain stuff by certain people right. that I'm not going to be able to say on the podcast. But oh, here we go. Say, <laughs> but say this wasn't the only Nintendo PlayStation in existence. Um, wouldn't it be wise to sell it now, get as much <laughs> press coverage as possible before other ones come out? I'm going to go on Ravi's house and raid his attic. What have <laughs> yeah. you got lurking Ravi's in there? Ravi's got six of them. <laughs> He's just using them as a footrest. But, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if, if people created this, then uh, there, there must be a few more on the team. And if that's one that just kind of got out, then, you know, it makes sense to hype it up, wouldn't it, to get the highest price? I see what you're saying, Ravs. But I would have thought, you know, this story's over a year old now. You know the existence of it, not the fact that he's two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the selling one's been around this week, though. Yeah, the selling one's around this week. But I would have thought somebody'd come forward that they have one. 
Yeah, someone else. You someone mean. else would yeah. have come for if if it you know if it was just, just if I had one of these lying about every every. I've every I've heard of rumours. That's, <laughs> that's it, all it's rumours. It's him. I know it is. It's Rabbit. He's got one. <laughs> I've got... glued a PlayStation. <laughs> <laughs> we go. Around. It's not even a PlayStation One. It's a PS Two. <laughs> Crudely done. <laughs> look, lads, look what I've got. Bought <laughs> on Snenton now, Market I, for a quid. If, if this does sell for a high price, I hope it goes to. A museum yeah. or somewhere where it's going to be accessible or someone's going to dump all the stuff or make copies or x-rays of the board like it wouldn't be nice going to a private collector that just keeps it what do you yeah. reckon how much do you think it'll go for lads i was oh, trying to think God i reckon knows. you think 100k yeah. i don't know do you think Rare. should we all have a have a pop and then right, we'll I'll do, do a hundred thousand dollars. I you, think so Dan, video, got, this, is, for, this is not an auction, by the way. So we've got Dan, <laughs> so we got Dan for a hundred thousand, Ravi. I think over a million because oh, wow. the um, American market has just gone absolutely mad for video game systems. And I think if you get the right person, uh, I could be totally wrong. I, yeah. Okay. Usual. Well, I was going to go. I was going to go lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to go for thirty thousand. Okay. Thirty thousand dollars. Whoever's nearest wins it. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but but this is actually a working unit because remember Ben. And heck, he repaired it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, he repaired this one. And this got, because it runs Super Nintendo games. Yeah. And they did actually, there's an emulator of it now, isn't there? They kind of dump the ROMs and stuff. Mm. And I think you can, there's a couple of games you can play in the emulator. I think somebody made like a custom game yeah, for the it. emulator, but you can't actually run it on the system. Oh, just right. on the emulator. I mean, it's a cool bit of history to own. And, you know, at the moment, as far as Joe and I know, <laughs> a one-off that's out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, it would be really cool if it went into the hands of a museum or something like that, you know, not just someone who's going to, you know, oh, look what I've got and keep it in their bedroom. Yeah, you know, some, yeah. like, some rich, like, game collector. <laughs> it just gets uh, stained by the sun. If someone goes on YouTube and retrobrites that, they'll get <laughs> So We'll keep an eye on it then, of course, you know, if anyone would like to buy his little Christmas present, we're always open to, uh, to donations. Now let's talk about a topic that we were discussing last week. The Atari VCS has reared its head again in the news this week. And actually, it turns out, there's a couple of stories that have gone around. Now, first of all, let's talk about the first one that is, they've actually revealed what they are saying is the motherboard to the Atari VCS console. So, on Medium, which is kind of a blogging platform, they have um, Atari VCS, plastics, thermals, and internals. So, uh, thanks for the listeners for actually giving us this link. And uh, they're showing testing they're showing the pre-production board as well um they've got like little molds and stuff so you know they are progressing and i was like show us a prototype but Mm -hmm. um yeah it seems that there's hardware out there which is good well this does look like i mean not like when we had the coleco chameleon it turned out to be a graphics card yeah um no one's come forward and actually identified this as something else and looking at it, I mean, you know, architecturally, it looks like a, a modern games console. It's With got a Ryzen CPU in there. Yeah. Right there in the centre. You've yeah. got, you know, your dual USB by the looks of it there. You've got HDMI, um, a couple of other random kind of ribbon connectors around it as well that you imagine would go to media readers and that kind of thing. It looks like a modern, very simplistic board. Um, a few people in forums have pointed out there is um, no visible RAM on there. But I guess that could be kind of... On the underside or maybe... Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah, they're only showing the top of the board here. Someone actually, I was watching a video. It was a video you linked me up to today. Oh, it was a guy kind of doing a breakdown of the uh, board and what what his thoughts were on it. And it's a great channel. Let me just quickly look the name up because it's a channel I watch regularly and the name's completely slipped my mind at the moment. And it is Spawnwave. Now, Spawnwave on YouTube actually did a video about this. 
And I mean, he kind of talks about his thoughts on it. He's skeptical, as a lot of people are about yeah. this prototype. But one interesting point he makes is you look right in the lower left corner of it, and it's made by a company called Ask PCB. And if you go onto their website, what they are is a company that essentially you can order a motherboard, they'll make it overnight for you, 24 hours delivery. Oh, okay. And they'll get you it next day. They specialize in custom boards are delivered really quick. Right, okay. So there's a speculation there that Atari, they've heard our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they've had this whipped up by Ask PCB. It's all your fault, Joe. It's all my fault. <laughs> but no, that is interesting, though, yeah. jokes aside. That, um, yeah, that's, I don't know, it's just building more... You know, you, you had me there for a minute. <laughs> I mean, it, it might be the right out. thing. Yeah, it, it, it looks, looks like it looks could work. nice. They look like they've got designs, and they've also got good plastic moulding for the case as well. It yeah, looks like, you know, with those. the wood grain on there as well. So, Well, in other news about the Atari VCS this week, the register who... It kind of feels a bit like the register really got it in mm. for the Atari PCS. Well, well, they say you only get on the register if you've done something bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that's a lot of people go. How do we get on the register? And they're like, just mess up. Well, they had a fallout, I think. You know, with the original pro, all that hotel room story that happened yeah. years ago now. Uh, but this is quite an interesting little development here. The headline is. Atari VCS architect quits the project, mm. claims he hasn't been paid for six months. Retro consoles a mess, may never launch, sources allege. Now, this turns out that the uh, main system architect, Rob Wyatt, he quit the project last week on Friday, October the 4th. He said he's officially resigned as the architect of the VCS. He said they haven't paid invoices going back over six months to his design consultancy. Um, which were working on the VCS, and he said they're a small company. They've been actually really lucky to survive that long without mm. getting paid, which doesn't bode well. Yeah. That doesn't sound good. Um, and now, I mean, having the lead architect quit the project at this stage, maybe got the stage where, look, it's made now, we don't need him, which doesn't yeah, sound nice. Yeah, it could be, it could be that, yeah. But and they raised, they raised a lot in the Kickstart, don't, didn't they? So you would think they'd be but able three to million, pay people. was it, something like that? Yeah, the and they did, yeah. which is weird why they haven't paid this guy. Yeah. Sure that's a drop in the ocean compared to... And how does it say how much they owe? It's 75,000 euros or something. It's not an insignificant amount of money, but for a small company, that would yeah, be. Yeah, that's a lot of money. You know, that's, yeah. that's that's probably free people's yearly, you know, income or something. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, this guy's trying to keep his independent company yeah, going. Yeah, exactly. So, again, it, it, it seems weird because they do something right, but yeah. then on the other hand, something else comes along that kind of makes everyone sceptical again. Uh, counteracts it. Yeah. Know, yeah. And I'll be honest, I, I don't know which way this is going to go. Because I think people, we talked about it last week, they have been burned by stuff like the Coleco Chameleon mm. stuff. There's so many comments. It's a scam. It's never mm. going to happen. Mm. That seems to be the, the top comment on every Reddit post I see, every YouTube video, every article. Uh, there's just there's not enough solid proof that this thing... Is going to be in people's hands in December mm. for me. Like we're just not. I'm just not. I'm just not feeling it. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I feel a lot more confident now that I've seen a motherboard and I've seen plastic molding and stuff like that. But still, it's like, do you have an OS? Mm. Do you have a, mm. a, a? How are you going to operate? What firmware are you going to put on it? What? Yeah. You know, you've got all these features on the board. Are they all going to be active on launch? Like they yeah. might say, you know, oh, the USBs don't work on launch and this doesn't work, but we got it out there. You know? We got it out. We got it in your hands. Yeah. You know, we talked about there's no RAM on them. Maybe you download the RAM. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a summary here on the register at the end of this article. So they said, you know, we're getting into the weeds. Here's our short version of our two-week investigation. The Atari VCS will be an extremely limited console. It's essentially a $250 PC in a nice-looking retro box. Atari's main architect has quit, saying he's not being paid. Penny pinching throughout the development process – 
has resulted in a range of bad decisions that effectively presents the Atari VCS from calling itself a dedicated games console. No original game developers have signed up to the Atari VCS two years after its launch and are unlikely to in the future either. There will be no native apps. Services like Netflix will be accessed through a web browser. And the Atari VCS is unlikely to hit its March 2020 deadline and may in fact never launch, they're saying. Now, they said they've sent their concerns through to Atari's press agency, Uber Strategist. They promised to get back to them. And at the time of recording, this was five days ago and they haven't got a reply yet. So, yeah, yeah I mean, there's a lot of kind of bad publicity surrounding this and they really need to go into damage control if they want to kind of should, get should, it out there. Should we cover this when something solid actually comes out next? Because we're just going to be covering drama for the next <laughs> yeah. couple of months, aren't yeah. we? We'll wait till something solid happens until we get back We've into VCS We've got land. to the point of yeah. just me and Ravi going, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and Dan going, oh, I don't know. It's like, it'll be like the Coco Chameleon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. We are always impartial, though. So yeah. we, we hope it does come out. So. <laughs> we'll keep an eye on this. We'll get any updates, of course, we'll let you know. Now, something that actually might happen, might be more yeah. chat, even though this has not been confirmed either. Do you remember that The Simpsons have actually got a good history of video games? I remember The Simpsons arcade game was a now, brilliant arcade. You say The Simpsons has a good history yeah. of video games. They have a history of video Are games. Are you going to slag off? Better than South Park. Better than South Park. Yeah, better than South Park. So there's a, there's a whole treasure trove of Simpsons games. Joseph Fox, if you're about to slag off Bart versus the Space Mutants, meaning you're going to fall out. <coughs> I'm not going to slag off Bart versus the Space Mutants at all. I don't have an issue with classic Simpsons games. Some people, some angry video gamers may have issues with previous with old school Simpsons games and stuff, but Simpsons Hit and Run 2003 classic oh, is, yeah. is yeah. a massive PlayStation 2 and GameCube classic. I think that, that it came was out a, on the original Xbox as well. Well, that essentially like is Grand Theft Auto with The Simpsons. Yeah, it, it was a PC, well, PC version, you know, kind of version of GTA, uh, which children could play. And I was a child when I got, you know, when I got my hands but on it. But you know, when you played it, it was the driving that was so good. Yeah. Because they had shortcuts. I remember you used to yeah. smash through like signs, people's houses. And if you work the map out on Simpsons Hit and Run, you could just bomb it across it. It was <laughs> so bomb good. across anywhere, yeah. bomb across Springfield. Yeah. So it's not been announced, but the is it the original developer? Yeah. Is saying it's something they absolutely would love to explore and be fun to explore. You no, know, this is the only game I can't get running on my GameCube Wii U emulator. Oh, and really? I'm sat there and really? I'm like, oh, this is <laughs> the one I want. Yeah. I wonder why that is. Well, this is a guy who made it. His name is Vlad Seraldi. And yeah. uh, randomly did, did an interview with Lad Bible. Yeah. Um, and he said he would actually like to do a remaster of it. Yeah. And he said he could see it on multiple different platforms as a remake or a remaster. And actually, now he mentions that. Cause, I mean, I've been playing like, you played Mario Kart on the iPhone. I haven't played it. It works yet, really no. well. It does. It work really yeah. Well? A lot of people have been slagging it. I really enjoyed it. Call of Duty came out in the yeah, iPhone. Yeah, that of works mine's pretty well. That, yeah. So I think it's got the stage where actually, you know, the mobile games are actually very capable in terms of control. Oh, so he's saying anything think it could come to. Oh, he said a lot of different platforms it could potentially oh, okay. run on. Um, again, I mean, it, it's nothing confirmed. He's just saying he could see that this could yeah. happen. Yeah. I mean, obviously, all the media have run with it. And now I think going, there is a demand for this game. Yeah. This isn't the first time I've heard people talking about it but obviously we've actually now got the developer mm-hmm. but I know people do want this game you know whether we're all wearing rose 
rose-tinted glasses with it. But I do, I did enjoy it. I remember really enjoying The Simpsons Hit and Run. And there is kind of that era, you know, kind of the mid-2000s. A lot mm. of those games, of course, they're on those systems that just before HD came in. Mm. Um, and a lot of them haven't had the kind of remastered touches to them yet. You know, it's kind of got the stage where we're doing all the, you know, the, the PlayStation stuff and that again. Yeah. But not, we haven't got into GameCube kind of era yet. But that would be a game that would translate really well to modern yeah, systems, yeah. I think. And The Simpsons, I mean... All right, I mean, it kind of lost its mojo on TV like over a decade ago, <laughs> if not more. But it's still a franchise. You know, you put Channel 4 on, 6 p.m., it, it's yeah, still on it's every still day. On. Yeah. yeah, it's still a very, very big uh, property, I think. So it would be great to see that game coming back. And I just, I, I love the Simpsons characters, though. And yeah. I, I, I love the Simpsons, but I hate the new Simpsons. That's, I think yeah, that's yeah, just the general, yeah. like, everybody's kind of in that. But the classic stuff, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I set, um, I've got, like, a like a Sky Plus kind of box, um, and we, we are set it to, like, series link and record all the yeah. Simpsons on there. Go through, and either in 4 by 3 I watch, when it gets to widescreen, I'm like, yeah, skip that one. <laughs> what was it? What Last last season of South Park, at every end of it, they said, cancel the Simpsons. Right. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So if, you, if we get any more news on that, of course, we'll keep you up to date with it. I think it's interesting that the original developer is now saying that. Oh, right? Yeah. yeah. And we'll the reaction see. this has had kind of makes and you think. And I think maybe. there is there is definitely a demand for it there. So, now talking about video games getting out there, what about this? Did you ever expect to hear a video games music show on BBC Radio Three? Not at all. <laughs> and I think this is absolutely fantastic because they're kind of seeing that games are getting popular, and you know this is going to bring video game music to a lot of people because I think video game composers are as good, even better than regular composers and I'm constantly listening to video game music we, we we promote it a lot on this show and they're basically saying you know with stuff like data discs uh coming out I am 8 bit as well you know these mm. vinyl video game scene these huge concerts and, and the Rob, well. Hubbard, Rob Hubbard concert yeah the symphony yeah. recently uh they're saying that they want to do a full show so it's not just going to be nostalgic they're going to have modern stuff in there but they say each week they'll play one classic track that they think's kind of stood the test of time. And they'll also interview a video games composer, lifting the lid on the kind of background of how to write video game music, cool. which we've done on quite a few episodes here. And the rest of the show, she's just going to play tracks that she loves. That's which awesome. Which is awesome. I think probably having, you know, the fact that Rob Hubbard was on the one show the other week, and they did actually air that without telling anyone, didn't they? Yeah. Like, we didn't have any chance to pre-promote it, it just happened. Because um, it, re- it missed its original air date, then it happened about two weeks later. But the fact that Rob was there on like a primetime BBC One show. Mm. Proves, I think, the BBC, there is someone at the BBC who I think actually has got a lot of respect for video game yeah, music. Yeah, this is so. uh, Jessica Curry, and yeah. she's saying, you know, video game music is mind-blowing music, which really thinks it is. And she says, you know, a lot of people think it's just battle music or aggression, but she wants to prove that it's... Could it be further from the truth? You know, you get really emotional, you get nice soundscapes, all these different types of music and video games that's cool though because it's like again it just feels like this stuff is becoming more and more accepted all the time yeah and, yeah which is awesome to see now this week we've got an amazing guest who's coming up in just a minute um i actually recorded this one on my own at home the other night because due to time difference we had to record this like late on a friday night mm. and you know you guys are wasted by then so did, did it on my own um so this is with michael katz now he was a director for new product categories at mattel toys he created the first portable handheld video games. Auto Race, Mattel's football as well. After that, he went to do marketing at Coleco, the ColecoVision. After that, he went to Epics. And then he went to Atari, um, 
working on like originally their computers they had out with Jack Tramiel. Um, there's some very interesting stories about his time working with Jack. And after that, he went to a little company called Sega and launched a um, console you might know called the Mega Drive. So, um, Never heard of it. Bit of an interesting history, this guy. So he's so good. Michael Katz is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast in a couple of minutes' time. Before we do that, our good friends at Games have been in the news again. Now, quite fitting that we talk about at Games after the Mega Drive because the actual Mega Drive Mini's here. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Everyone seems to love it. The At Games ones didn't really do all that well in terms of reception. Sega! They're in trouble again, aren't they? Yeah, so from two different companies. Now, <laughs> there's two like lawsuits kind of coming at once. First one, this is really bizarre. Bandai Namco are going to sue them over a Miss Pac-Man mini arcade cabinet. Now, they reckon that At Games actually didn't have any license or right from them to do this. Wow. Which seems really, really bizarre. I don't know, because it's not like they are a small, little, unknown company. That just seems a bit weird. Why would they just go, yeah, yeah, we've got that, and let's yeah. make it? Huge title, isn't it? There's got to be more to it than that. There's more to it than that, surely. But weirdly, they're also claiming that apparently this unauthorised version of Miss Pac-Man has caused some problems with the original developers of the game. It's kind of broken down talks that were ongoing relating to the actual ownership of the game. And they reckon since this cabinet's come out, all that has collapsed now. I don't know. It just seems like excuses for like, <laughs> these things. This has happened. This has happened. They're trying to blame at games. Yeah, we all take the piss out of at games. You know, they did the, the crap Sega. But it just, I don't know. There's, there's got to be something more to it, sure. I, I see a lot of this happening, though. Like people basically releasing old games and people going, no, we own the rights. And yeah. then another company going, we own the rights. And it, and it's so, so yeah, confused you know with you some could, of the older You could stuff. be right. Maybe they've got, they think they've got the rights, but yeah. they've got it from the wrong company. So a lot of these companies have been through so many other companies over yeah, the years. You maybe know, and R- Ravi's onto it there, actually. So there is an article on Polygon that I'll link up to and I've shown that. So kind of skirts over the details. It doesn't go too in-depth. But also it turns out that um, Walgreens, which are a big retailer in America, yeah. um, they're suing at games for breach of contract. Now, they're saying that, you know, when they obviously release all you know, the flashback machines yeah. and uh, the, the Mega Drive that they brought out, that they didn't sell too well. And apparently they promised Walgreens that they could return them and get the money back. Um, and apparently they sent them all back and they didn't get any money. That's the same. So they're owed $1.62 million for unsold products that they returned, apparently. So not a good month to work at games, I'd no, say. It doesn't at seem all. we're doing too well at the moment. So um, interesting developments. If you want to read more about those, I'll put those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, the Retro Hour is just one place where you can find out what's happening in the world of retro gaming. The other one is, and something that everybody needs to read, is our very good friends at Retro Gamer magazine. Now, of course, Retro Gamer, legendary title, been going for years, comes out every month, and the only magazine dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming. They bring you exclusive access to classic developers, taking you behind the scenes, read what the biggest names in the industry have got to say about the games they created, the legacy they've left, and also revisit your favourite games of all time and uncover fascinating new facts. Now, on the week that the Mega Drive Mini did, of course, come out last Friday, Retro Gamer this month has got their cover feature dedicated to the Mega Drive Mini and also the guys that are behind the software on there, the story of M2. Now, they've made, you know, really, they're responsible for how good the Mega Drive Mini is. And there's only one of us around this table here who owns one, and, of course, it's you, Joe. It is me. You liking it? <laughs> I'm loving it. Um, played it quite a lot with my wife so far. Managed to pick it up. I went to pick it up the day it came out, but unfortunately, Argos was closed when I got there, so I picked it up <laughs> the next day. Um, absolutely loving it so far. Um, the feel of the controllers are just 100% legit. 
uh, and then the games are just running absolutely smooth, so smooth. And there's been a few comments I've seen from other reviewers and stuff saying there's a slight delay. I've not had any issues uh, in delaying the emulation or anything. Well, like you've that. gone pretty much from RF to like HDMI now. <laughs> when it so, comes to yeah. when it comes to Mega Drive, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, must be in heaven. So it does look pretty nice, pretty crisp. Um, I've not stretched it out or anything. I've left it in the original ratio and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, absolutely loving it so far. And you know, it's really nice to kind of read all about it in. Uh, retro gamer magazine as well but one thing i wanted to point out yeah is i was talking to dan about it earlier on is i found it very interesting that the controllers have the red abc buttons not the actual buttons themselves but the text the letters, on them the text yeah. on them are in red and then the start button is in white i'm fairly certain that's not how the original mega drive controllers were if you had a mega drive one controller all white it was all white yeah and if you had the mega drive two it was all red so and i've not seen anybody pointing that out it could be because I'm going insane and I'm wrong. Or you've got a really rare exclusive one off. But um, yeah, maybe. But I, I don't know. Like I was just like, this is this is bizarre. I've not seen anybody anybody mention that. Or You'd think I everyone just... would, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah even a four. So people scream at me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Point it out if you think, yeah, that is interesting. Let me know. So if you want to read more about the Mega Drive Mini, though, if you are thinking of getting one, maybe an exclusive limited edition like Joe's, <laughs> and there's actually 17 pages dedicated to it wow. in this month's edition of Retro Gamer magazine. They've also got stuff like the making of Astro Clone that was a legendary game, uh, talking to Steve Turner as well. And then a game that we I know is one of your favourites. You love Shinobi, don't you? I do love a bit of Shinobi. And they've got Shadow Dancer, the making of that yeah, game Yeah, they've got well. like a complete making of Shadow Dancer, everything you need to know about it as well, which is really interesting. So that's the kind of stuff that you can read about in Retro Gamer every Every month, the essential guide to classic games. Now, we've had this offer running for a couple of weeks. This is your last chance to claim this, all right? People have been tweeting and honestly, is this legit? Is this serious? This is honestly, we've been serious here. We want to give you a chance to save 93% off the cost of Retro Gamer magazine. So that means, bear in mind, it's, it's monthly, three issues of Retro Gamer that would normally cost you 15 quid. Mm-hmm. Just went to the news agent and bought it. How's about this? We'll give you it for a quid. You can't get anything for a quid these days. We keep saying this. You can't, what, you, you you can't, what can you get for a quid? You get a 99p burger from, from McDonald's. Or three copies of Retro Gamer magazine. Do the maths. Which one would you rather have? I would definitely have the three Retro Gamer magazines. Well, with, with the other 14 quid you save from getting that, you could get yourself 14 McAdee's burgers. Well, while there you're we go, exactly. Yeah. Everyone's a winner. So if you like this, 93%, an exclusive offer only for Retro Hour listeners. Get this while it's on. Do not miss out on it. And of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by doing it as well. All you have to do is tap this into your browser, myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro hour. So that is myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro hour with Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. And now let's get into this week's special guest talking about legendary companies like Mattel, ColecoVision, Epic, Atari, Sega. I catch up with the legend that is Michael Katz. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now we're going to get some stories about real innovative companies in the early days of video games and electronic entertainment like Mattel, Coleco, Atari, Epix, Sega, of course. Let's welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Michael Katz. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. Now, let's kind of go back to, you know, day one. I thought it would be a good place to start right at the beginning. I mean, do you remember your kind of first experience with video games when you first kind of saw them? Okay. Um... I was hired at Mattel back in 1975 to be, uh, the title was 
director of marketing for new product categories, and that meant getting Mattel into areas they had never been in before, as well as trying to get them established in areas where they had failed, like toy trucks and traditional games and things like that. So uh, it was a pretty open and broad charter. In that three or four year period, we tried to get Mattel back into new categories uh, or back into categories that they hadn't succeeded in against the likes of Hasbro and Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley, Tonka and others, but also to get into completely new areas. And uh, I had different development groups that I was working with at Mattel. Preliminary design was the name of the department, and they were basically the inventors. And after they invented a concept or a product or did the prototype, it was passed on to the engineering department uh, once it had officially gotten the green light and it was developed into actual product. So uh, at one point in, I guess, 1976 or 1977, I was meeting with Richard Chang, who was uh, a preliminary design director in charge of new areas. And I said to him, uh, Richard, let's try to develop the first electronic game. Uh, let's make it the size of the uh, battery-powered electronic calculators. Let's use LED or LCD technology, and let's see if we can create a game. So Richard came back about a month later with uh, a prototype where uh, it was a vertical prototype of LEDs going from the bottom of the screen to the top. And as the LED that you were controlling moved up the screen, you tried to avoid LEDs that were coming down to hit yours. And uh, it was enchanting. It was interesting. It was uh, playable. We made up some uh, themes that possibly could be uh, used uh, to make the game understandable and make it into a, a game with gameplay and objectives. And uh, the first one was Auto Race. Uh, we, we had tested the themes. Football was a more popular theme. We did some qualitative and quantitative research uh, with game players. Uh, but we made the first one Auto Race. Then the second one was Football then baseball, basketball, and that was the start of the industry of handheld electronic games. So uh, that was probably the most gratifying new area that we came up with in the three or four years that I was in charge of new product categories. But the most exciting thing was when we came up with the prototypes, uh, I went out and showed them to the 10 key retailers, uh, and there was uh, a range of excitement from general uh, terrific excitement about this new category of electronic product to, uh, you know, people like uh, Sears and Walmart who said, well, it's interesting, but we're going to wait and see if it's really as hot as you guys think it is. So they waited till year two, found out that it was very hot and uh, started taking distribution, uh, not initially, but Sears and Walmart one year after the category started. And I think that was a really bold step because you think of Mattel, I mean, they were more known for like, you know, Barbie dolls and Hot Wheels and then auto race. I mean, how much did that retail for? Was it like $24, $25? It was, must have been quite a premium product for them. It was uh, $39.95 uh, and I think when promoted, $29.95. And you're right, it was a high-priced item. It was uh, the first electronic item. Simon was out from uh, Milton Bradley, which, as you recall, was uh, a tabletop electronic game where you just duplicated sounds and lights that Simon was making. I believe you had it in the UK. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but there had been no real 
you know, portable game based on themes that were extremely popular, like, you know, sports or auto race or shooting and that kind of thing. So uh, we were the first to do it. And uh, there was a copy made by Coleco, uh, which was a company that was almost out of business and was known for, you know, uh, out, outdoor toys and ride-ons and not electronic product. But Arnold Greenberg, uh, who was one of the two sons of the founder, uh, decided that they would copy and try to improve on uh, Mattel's Football One. And I actually was offered a job to become the first vice president at Coleco. And the Greenbergs knew I had worked on new products at, at Mattel. So uh, I became the first VP of marketing, got equity in Coleco. Coleco uh, was a public company almost bankrupt, about $7 a share on the stock market. And uh, they got a jump on uh, on the electronic category by coming out with a duplicate product to Football One, but with more features. Uh, in the first week I got there, I was asked to approve a commercial, which had uh, electronic quarterback versus uh, Mattel's Football One. <laughs> so that was, ir- that was ironic. And then uh, at Coleco in the next three years, we did the head-to-head line. We did the miniature arcade games. Uh, we did ColecoVision, uh, the console and all the software. We did Cabbage Patch Kids. And Coleco was the fastest-growing New York Stock Exchange company uh, because of all that in 1981. Stock had gone from 7 to 60. And so that was a nice little run uh, based on getting started uh, with handhelds and ColecoVision and Cabbage Patch. So, uh, well, coming from those handhelds and then having the ColecoVision a home console, what kind of made them decide to go into the home console market? And did they kind of see that as the next big thing? That's a very good question, Dan, because uh, uh, I was head of marketing and uh, I had a director of marketing named Al Khan, who was a very bright guy. And uh, when Arnold Greenberg came to us and said, I think we should come out with a console, we basically had had experience with licensing titles from the arcades, uh, but they were in the handheld area uh, or the tabletop area. And there was Atari and there was Mattel, and they were both doing well with their consoles. And we said, uh, Arnold, you know, uh, we should make software for those guys using our strength in licensing hot arcade titles. So we should come out with games that play on the Atari and in television system, but is there really a market for a third console? And he said, uh, and credit to him, he said, let's make our console more powerful than in television. Uh, let's uh, get licenses that we will only use on ColecoVision and will not be available to play on in television or Atari at least until six months after we introduce them uh, on ColecoVision. And so, as you might recall, uh, we had the exclusive license to Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong was the hottest arcade game. We made Donkey Kong the game packed in with ColecoVision at introduction. Anyone in uh, the home area, any game player who wanted to play Donkey Kong at home had to buy the new ColecoVision because that was the only way in the first six months uh, that they could get Donkey Kong. And that was a pretty brilliant move on our part, uh, generated by the concept that Arnold Greenberg had, that there was room for a better, more powerful console uh, if, in fact, 
the content was there to support it because, as you know, it's the games that sell the hardware. Well, after Coleco, you went to Epics. Um, how did you end up at Epics? Well, I I was at at Coleco, and one of my objectives was to uh, uh, help turn the company around, uh, get involved in exciting product, which we had, and and make some money on the stock. I had stock options uh, as the stock, if we were successful, went from you know seven to seventy. And uh, all that happened, but I uh, was a California boy. Uh, I was married with two kids. They were in California. My goal had been to be part of what happened at Coleco, which uh, I was lucky successfully did happen, and to return to California uh, as the place I wanted to live and become president of a growing you know, toy or video game or electronics company. So I was contacted by some headhunters uh, in my third or fourth year at Coleco, and they said they represented a, a PC game company, a very strategic company that made PC games, and the name of the company was Strategic Simulations slash Epics, and their board members were venture capitalists uh, from San Francisco, and they were not that happy with the growth of Strategic Simulations, the company, and they wanted someone with a mass market consumer products background uh, to come in as president and CEO and to create uh, more of a mass market product line uh, for Epics and transform it into a broad-based video game company, not just a strategic uh, you know, company that made games like uh, Temple of Apshai, which is a text-based game The company was doing only one and a half million dollars in sales and losing money. And so the board members uh, who recruited me and they searched for him, they used basically said, uh, we want you to come in as president and uh, to do what you've done and learned at Mattel and at Coleco and uh, transform Epics into a mass market game company. So, uh, it was extremely gratifying. Uh, I joined the company. Uh, we thought of uh, coming up with the strategy of action strategy games, games that were somewhat thinking games but had action elements that if you performed the action properly, you could turn uh, a game into a successful action strategy game. Witness the games like Jumpman, and Pit Stop, Pit Stop, which was actually a concept I had of an auto race game, not based on just as fast as you could race around the track, but a game based on the strategy of uh, how long will gas in the car last? How long will the tires last? When do you go into the pits and uh, then control the pit crew to change tires to gas up the car? So the strategy element even though it was an action concept, auto race games were very popular. The strategy element was you had to decide uh, when you came into the pits to change tires or gas up. If you were wrong and came in too late, your car had broken down on the track. If you came in too early, uh, it took too much time to go through the pit and uh, the other racers you were competing against, uh, you know, beat you. So, uh, we needed a, a logo to say action strategy, to say we were getting more into popular mass market action-oriented video game type games. 
And uh, so we came up with using the thinker, Rodin's thinker, uh, as a strategy symbol, but we put a joystick in Rodin's, in, in the thinker's hands. And if you recall, maybe Epix uh, started doing uh, different categories and genres of software. We had an educational line, we had activity toys, uh, but the main thrust was action strategy games demonstrated by the thinker. And on each package, we had, you know, either so many thinkers uh, or we had uh, the academic symbol suggesting it might have been an educational game. Uh, and for action, we had a different symbol. So if grandparents or our parents were coming in to buy PC games for the kids, they could see the title. They could look at the numbers of symbols and decide whether we were promoting it as action or strategy or combination. Uh, all our packaging was black and silver. Uh, you know, so we basically changed the whole look uh, of the company and had five or six different genres. Uh, although it's a little known fact, I went to my buddies at Mattel and we were the first video game company to license Barbie and Hot Wheels yeah. for computer games. And I went to Hasbro and talked to my friend, Stephen Hassenfeld. We licensed GI Joe. Uh, and these were all licensed for a line we called activity toys where there were not games where you won or lose, but there were games where you actually controlled the action. Uh, like in GI Joe, you had battles against enemies. You had weapons, uh, in Hot Wheels, you built a car, put it on the track, uh, operated it, but you were not racing to try to win or lose. Uh, and uh, for Barbie, it was dressing Barbie and putting makeup on Barbie for different events like parties and other things. So Epix actually was the first uh, computer game or video game company uh, to seek and get the hottest toy licenses. So... Uh, in seven months of doing that, because we were running out of money when I joined the company, uh, the company went from one and a half million and a loss uh, to seven and a half million in sales uh, seven months later and being profitable. And we had a great booth at the uh, CES show in Chicago when we introduced all the new lines, the new packaging, uh, the new advertising. And um, that was extremely gratifying. Having those educational games as well probably made the parents feel like they justified, you know, buying the kid a computer, I guess, because they're learning something on it. Well, it, the, our, our, our tagline was make learning fun, yeah. which became the tagline or was the tagline for everyone, everyone in the educational category. But what I should have pointed out to you, Dan, was uh, in those days, about 10 retailers in the U.S. controlled uh, distribution on video games and toys. So it was the likes of Sears, Pennies, Wards, Walmart, Toys R Us, uh, KB Toys, Kmart. And if you didn't get distribution with a new product, any toy category or game category, if you didn't get distribution, meaning get on the shelves of at least 70% of the top 10 retailers, you were never going to have a top-selling toy or game. And uh, educational software and educational product at that time was not the big volume product for anybody. And the key retailers did not devote a lot of shelf space to it. So the big battle was not only getting the attention of the consumer, but you had to get on the shelves and the buyers 
had to give you shelf space and they were not giving you shelf space for the educational software like they were giving it to you for the, you know, the Pac-Mans and the Donkey Kongs uh, and the, the action and animated software and games. So you had to, you had to get by and get through and get success uh, with the retail buyer just to get shelf distribution. And it went to what they thought would be the highest volume products and what were in terms of popularity uh, with the consumer. Well, obviously, Jack Tramiel left Commodore in 84 and he went to run Atari. So how did he tempt you to join them? And did you know Jack before you went to Atari? I, let's see. I, I, met, I met Jack and Sam uh, early on, and I'm not sure how or when I first met them, but I met them uh, when I started at Mattel and uh, then went to Coleco. And uh, it was a little fraternity of uh, video game and computer people in those days. So I got to know Jack and Sam somewhat on a social basis. And um, when they bought Atari and I was at Epix, I got a phone call from Jack asking if I wanted to have lunch with he and Sam to discuss something important to them. And I said, sure. And I sat down to lunch and uh, an hour and a half later, I had accepted a job with them that was three-pronged. One, to be president of their video game division because they wanted to bring back uh, the uh, 2600 and 7800. And, of course, video games was my background. Uh, They wanted someone to run marketing in the home computer division uh, for the Atari titles, and they asked if I would do that. And I said, uh, I'm willing to do both those things if you do something for me. And they said, what's that? And I said, I want to start a game, a division at Atari called Entertainment Electronics, and I want to run it. And Entertainment Electronics is doing electronic toys and games, uh, not video games, but products like uh, what Worlds of Wonder came out with four or five years before, like Teddy Ruxpin, like Laser Tag. Uh, I want, under the Atari name, us to have a division for electronic toys, working with outside inventors to develop great electronic product, having our own inventors internally, and uh, uh, working with any of the arcade companies that might have come up with concepts uh, for non-game electronic product that they didn't have the know-how or market to do themselves. So Jack said, okay, you're president of the Entertainment Electronics Division, you're president of the Video Game Division, your head of marketing for the Atari home computer division. Uh, you know, what do you want to take the job? So uh, I asked for stock options. Uh, I asked for, you know, autonomy in certain areas. They said, yes, do it, do it, do it. And so we did it. And uh, I later learned that one of Jack's motivations, the main one for bringing back video games, was to getting a, get a revenue base and profitability and cash that he could use to develop the ST computer. Yeah. Uh, that was his baby. That was going to be the Commodore 64 computer. And uh, he had no interest in video games. And in fact, he had no interest in my entertainment <laughs> electronics division, uh, which we found out uh, by licensing the first product from uh, uh, an electronic game company in Chicago. Uh, that was run by Ken Fidesna. It was Williams Electronics. Two of their engineers had 
developed a superior state-of-the-art laser tag product, uh, but Williams didn't want to get into anything other than arcade games. So uh, I convinced Jack that this was the first product I wanted in, entertain, in entertainment electronics. Uh, we wanted to pay them a royalty. We wanted to get it out for whatever Christmas it was, and that would be you know, our first thrust into entertainment electronics. And all went well until uh, about two months before Christmas when we were developing the marketing program. We had already worked out a licensing deal with Williams, and Jack said, you know, I don't really want to become an electronic toy, and you know, uh, toy company. No way. He said, I'm pulling out of the deal. And we had to pull out, leaving Williams with the product, with the deal, but with no distribution and no way to market it. So uh, that made it clear to me that uh, Jack's motivation was basically get revenue to support the ST development. And the ST, as you know, was not a success in the U.S. I know it did well in the U.K., but in the U.S., we couldn't get distribution for uh, the SD computer because the computer retailers and the mass merchants uh, were wary of dealing with Jack because they knew that uh, he didn't support products very well with marketing. He was difficult to deal with, and uh, all of the retailers needed co-op advertising supplied by manufacturers, and they didn't think they were going to get any kind of support from Jack uh, on the computer side, as well as him not spending a lot of marketing dollars. So that's when Jack decided we'll just buy our own retail chain in the States. We'll uh, buy Federated Electronics, a bankrupt retailer in Los Angeles, sort of like the Best Buy of today, but not nearly successful. And he said, if they won't give us, you know, and like Tandy and Radio Shack at that time, he said, if they won't give us shelf space for the ST, we'll just bring, we'll buy our own retail shelves We'll buy Federated, and we'll sell it exclusively, just like Radio Shack and Tandy. And uh, it didn't work. <laughs> well, how, how did you feel about <laughs> all this, though? Because, I mean, you, you've been brought in to do this thing you wanted to do. And that laser tag thing, I mean, personally, that must have been quite an embarrassment, I guess, and put you in an awkward situation when you got that far into it. That wasn't the only awkward situation, Dan. I'll tell you one other, then I'll answer your question. The other awkward situation was uh, I knew Dave Rosen, the, the U.S. chairman of Sega, uh, quite well just from being in the industry. And I got a call from Dave Rosen one day asking if uh, uh, I would have any interest in uh, taking a look at a game console system that they had developed in Japan for Sega that was more powerful with more abilities in terms of graphics, animation, and sound than any of the consoles out at the time. And would Atari have an interest in licensing the hardware? licensing this new system and it would get atari back into the game with the leading uh console system in terms of power and capability uh i of course got excited Uh, i went and told jack about it and sam we set up a meeting uh between nakiyama rosen the tremels and myself and they offered say they offered atari the opportunity to license what became the Genesis product. And uh, after several weeks of negotiation, Jack was not willing 
to pay the advance and guarantee and royalty amount that Sega wanted. So Sega decided at that point to do it themselves. Ironically, <laughs> I went on to Sega like I had at Coleco uh, to compete with the company I just left. But uh, That's crazy. So Atari, Atari could have had the Genesis and they could have released it. Exactly. Atari could have gotten back into the console business, not just by lowering the price of the 2600, which we did, and making it smaller physically and making it the low-end uh, you know, video game for people who couldn't afford at that time Nintendo and later couldn't afford the PlayStation. So uh, uh, instead of just playing catch-up by lowering the price of the, uh, the Atari 2600 and making an attempt at uh, the 7800 by finishing that off and getting some software for it, which I can get into, uh, and trying something called the XE game system, which was supposed to be a combination game player and low price computer, but it never caught on as a marketing concept. Instead of just doing those three things, we could have licensed the Genesis and really gotten back into the game console business in a big way. Um, so, you, know, you know what I'm thinking, though? Because I'm looking in front of me here, and I've got a few consoles here. I've got actually a Mega Drive in front of me, and I've got an Atari Jaguar, actually, as well. Um, and, and the Jaguar was a capable platform, but it obviously wasn't a successful platform. Do you think if Atari had got the Genesis, do you think it would have been the success that it was under Sega? Um, I would have had to have convinced Jack, or Jack would have had to have been willing, with the help of Sam, who was a little more uh, open to things that were non-computer related, if they had agreed to provide the marketing dollars uh, behind uh, the Genesis in terms of creating awareness, advertising, and most importantly, building confidence in independent game developers to support the new system because they knew Atari despite Jack's reputation, would give us the marketing dollars to create awareness with the consumer, then it could have happened, Dan. But the whole hesitancy of any developers, game developers, uh, software developers, to support the SD computer, to support the 7800, was all due to the reputation that Jack had of not you know, providing enough money behind his own products to create a market and to gain market share for his own products, uh, meaning the Atari products, so that the consumer would be aware of it, be confident, and would have a great library of software, whether it was a game product or a combination product, you know, or the most powerful new game system. So that 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 would have been that would have been a barrier that would have had to have been overcome. Uh, Jack would have had to have a change of, of thought and uh, a change of philosophy about promoting and marketing and providing the amount of money behind his hardware uh, to get the support of the software community.
And I think, you know, that did kind of show when he was at Commodore as well, it was the same. It was kind of his philosophy was to release machines at the lowest possible price. And maybe quality control wasn't always at the top of his list. But obviously, they did have a very successful product with the Commodore 64. But then we look at Atari, and I mean, you did mention the Atari 7800. And that was actually, it was technically a re-release, wasn't it? Because that was kind of on the shelf for about two years before it came out again in 86. That was that was a re-release, and it was a real challenge because uh, there were only six or seven uh, software titles, games, uh, introduced by the old Atari for the 7800 uh, when, I, when I got to Atari. And the mission was to, you know, make the 7800 the hot new game system if video games were going to come back. Uh, and, you know, they were coming back with Nintendo and then eventually with Nintendo and Sony, but they hadn't come back yet. So the dilemma was, how do we get, uh, with very little money uh, in terms of a software budget, how do we create new games at Atari for the 7800? And or how do we get the best game development, independent game development companies to spend their money and time to support new games for the 7800 when they had no faith that Jack was going to provide the money, the marketing money, the marketing dollars to give to us, to me, to create the TV advertising, the promotion and everything else to create awareness with the consumer. So that was the dilemma. And uh, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> it was it was the same position that I had been in previously when having to try to get software that was good that had generated its own awareness in another medium like the arcade game medium which is where we went to get software for the ColecoVision and the first home game consoles so the dilemma here was with the 7800 how do I get titles that had some awareness uh, to get the 7800 attention for the consumer and it occurred to me, why don't I go to my old buddies uh, on the computer side and try to license their hot computer game titles for the 7800? So I went to guys like Alan Miller at Accolade, who had the hottest sports game in hardball for the Commodore 64. And I said, Alan, uh, can we license hardball for the Atari 7800? Uh, you can do the conversion or we can do the conversion and uh, we'll have a sports game to add to the 7800 library that has already generated some awareness. So we did that with Hardball. Uh, I forget the other titles, but I went to Gilman Louie at uh, Spectrum Holobyte. I think I went to um, Bill Staley at Microprose for a flying game, but we licensed four or five hot computer game titles uh, that had awareness with the consumer and would give the 7800 some content uh, that was new and content that already had generated sales on the computer side and had generated awareness with game players in general. Well, let's kind of wind up your time at Atari then. What kind of made you leave Atari and what happened with the transition to Sega? I was at Atari three and a half years. I had stock options invested annually. Atari went public while I was there. The stock went from $3 to $12. Um, 
unfortunately, <laughs> it dropped down to almost nothing eventually. Uh, but uh, I had had three and a half years working with the Tremels. I was gratified by what we had been able to do with limited resources. Uh, I was kind of tired uh, of working in the game space. I had never traveled a lot in my life, and I wanted at least a sabbatical. And uh, so I quit and uh, took three months to travel around the world on my own and see uh, countries that I'd never been to. And uh, I thought I would come back and maybe do something completely different uh, away from video games and toys, because while I enjoyed it, uh, you know, there were a lot of other things I wanted to do. I liked specialty retailing. Uh, I liked uh, other categories of uh, marketing. And uh, so my plan was to just, you know, travel, then come back and explore uh, other avenues and other areas. So uh, I quit and went around the world for three months. And I came back and was sort of uh, exploring different opportunities. And uh, I got a call from Dave Rosen, who told me that uh, Sega uh, had just introduced the, uh, a new system uh, to compete with Nintendo. And uh, they never had a president of a real president of Sega US. They uh, wanted me to become president of a new division and basically take over the introduction of Genesis and make Sega into a uh, a force that can compete with Nintendo. So uh, back then, did Nintendo have it, like a ninety five percent market dominance or something in America? They did, and they continued to for about uh, the next uh, twelve to eighteen months. Uh, while we established the Genesis uh, in a lot of ways and built a complete company for Sega in the U.S., uh, including sales, marketing, product development, uh, engineering, design, and uh, uh, growing in terms of headcount and uh, establishing relationships with independent game developers who had never developed product for Sega because Sega just didn't have the clout but uh, they were impressed with the Genesis as a 16-bit system, what it could do. They were impressed by the fact that uh, uh, software was being developed uh, in Japan as well as in the U.S. internally and uh, through the help of these independent development groups. So uh, it was a wonderful Avis and Hertz situation, you know, where Avis had to try harder to beat Hertz mm. or Volkswagen going against the big guys. I always loved being the underdog, so uh, I had the incentive philosophically to do it, and uh, it was a challenge and a great opportunity, I thought. So I said yes, and uh, uh, out of it came Genesis does what Nintendo don't. Yes. The first time, the first, the first time a Japanese company had ever authorized their staff to take a competitive marketing stance against another Japanese company. It just was never done before, but I was 1,000% behind that being the thing to do. I had done it several times before, you know, uh, as you know, at uh, the Coleco's and the Epics of the world. And, uh, and it was clearly uh, a competitive marketing stance that was needed and uh, we could not get for Genesis a lot of the hot arcade game titles because Nintendo had a lock on them. 
So we had to ask ourselves, uh, how do we compete against Nintendo with a more powerful system? Yes, we had the advantage of the hardware, but it's software that sells hardware. We need an exclusive line of software, and how can we possibly get it when the hot arcade titles are all on exclusive with Nintendo? And uh, it occurred to me that maybe we could do it with personalities, with celebrities from the entertainment field, but more importantly, with sports personalities. And uh, there was already a deal at Sega when I got there with Pat Riley, who was a basketball coach. And I said, let's extend that line. Let's try to get the hottest sports athletes in football, baseball, basketball. Uh, Let's do, you know, what EA has done with Madden and FIFA soccer, mm-hmm. and let's get an exclusive line of personalities. So we went after the hottest athlete in the States at the time in U.S. football, who was Joe Montana, the San Francisco 49ers. We competed with, uh, we didn't know who, but it turned out to be Nintendo. And we beat out Nintendo for Joe Montana, uh, theoretically to be introduced the first Christmas with the Genesis, uh, and uh, uh, I convinced the Japanese against their best uh, thinking to pay Joan Montana the advance and guarantee, which was uh, an advance of $1.2 million uh, to uh, get a three-year contract exclusively uh, with Sega uh, to come out with Joe Montana football uh, the first Christmas of the introduction of the Genesis. And uh, a little-known fact is uh, we had contracted uh, an outside development group to do it. They were behind in the development of the football game. And when we determined that we were going to be late for Christmas, uh, I said, what can we possibly do? It occurred to me that maybe Trip Hawkins at EA, who had the most successful football franchise at the time in Madden football, maybe he had a backup football game available that we could make a deal on and that could, we could license and that could be, uh, the Joe Montana football game. And you're probably saying why on earth would, <laughs> would trip Hawkins give a competitor Sega, uh, a backup football game to compete with his own best selling football game. Yeah. And the answer, the answer is we gave him a deal where he didn't have to pay a license on any software he made that played on the Genesis. And we paid him a fat royalty to be able to uh, take over his backup football game, uh, have them finish it quickly and make that the Joe Montana football game. (laughs) So, you know, you know, a little known secret that I've talked about before, Dan, but nobody seems to have picked up on. Um, So our our thanks to Trip Hawkins, for saving the day and uh that that uh that plus the genesis does what nintendo don't campaign uh which not only meant the hardware genesis system was more powerful therefore better in graphics animation and sound than nintendo but genesis does what nintendo don't we also uh transferred into our pitch on software by having Joe Montana represent football, 
Pat Riley represent basketball. Tommy Lasorda represent U.S. baseball. Uh, we licensed the uh, boxing champion of the world at the time, uh, Hollyfield. Uh, he only lasted six months before he was beaten again, but we had uh, we had for a short time the hottest boxer. We had Michael Jackson as an entertainment personality. So we couldn't get the hottest games translated into games for the uh, Genesis at that time. But Japan was working on a hot animated game, which became Sonic the Hedgehog. In the meantime, we had hot sports games, and that was our positioning for Genesis does what Nintendo don't. Well, let's talk a bit about the relationship between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. I mean, was that difficult at times? And what was kind of your working relationship like with uh, Nakayama? Well, you know, I eventually got replaced by Tom Kalinske, who Nakayama had known from the Mattel days. Tom was at Mattel when I was at Mattel. He was uh, uh, a marketing VP of marketing on the toy side, and he later became president for a short time. So what transpired was the chant that I was supposed to chant every morning with my breakfast. And the only phrase I ever learned in Japanese was yakmandai. If you don't know Japanese, Dan, yakmandai means one million units. And immediately on taking over the U.S. uh, division, the new U.S. division, and becoming the president, I was told that my mission in the first 12 months was to sell Yakmandai of Genesis consoles, 1 million units. Well, that was a ridiculous target for uh, the game category uh, since Nintendo had 90 95% market share to achieve 1 million units in what was left of my 12-month tenure, which was about seven or eight months, uh, um, or, or thereabouts was probably undoable because we had to establish awareness. We had to get a library of software and, uh, we had to get consumers to try Genesis who were Nintendo stalwarts. And for the last five years, it played nothing but Nintendo, bought nothing but Nintendo software and nothing but Nintendo consoles. So what we achieved was sales of 500,000 units, which we were all pretty gratified by and thought was damn good. But the Japanese uh, Yakmandai cadre uh, thought, because they didn't know the U.S. market, thought that Cats and the Boys should have easily reached that 1 million units. So when Nakayama ran into in Japan... uh, his old acquaintance, Tom Kalinsky, he said, uh, you know, gee, I bet Tom could do it. Let's bring Tom in to replace Michael Katz, and I know that he will achieve one Yakmandai. So Tom was brought in, and of course Tom achieved Yakmandai because three or four months later, everything we had done in the first year came to fruition. Uh, we started denting Nintendo's share, and by the end of the you know uh, 18-month period, probably after we started the new division, uh, we had about a 20 to uh, about a 20% share from a 5% share, which in the next six months went to about a 
30 or 35 percent share. And uh, because of the fact that we did everything that you had to do against Nintendo to build a franchise and get deserters and cannibalization from the Nintendo base. Did that leave a bit of a sour taste in your mouth and the fact that Tom kind of got all the credit for it and kind of often, you know, many sources, he continues to to this day, really? What leaves the most sour taste uh, in my mouth in, uh, uh, of anything that could happen in business and does happen in business is when people take credit for what other people have done and they take credit claiming that they have done things that they didn't do. So I'll answer the question that way, Dan. Well, obviously, Sega had a bit of a rough ride in the decade after you left. I mean, you must have been immensely proud of the success that the Genesis had and, you know, taking on that Goliath of Nintendo and having that success. I mean, Sega never replicated that after. So, you know, you had a really good legacy in doing that. Uh, It was very gratifying. Mm. (laughs) Well, today, I mean, the time we're recording this, the... uh, Genesis Mini or the Mega Drive Mini, as it's known here in the UK, just got released today. Um, a small version of the Sega Genesis with loads of built-in games. And now we're seeing books come out and YouTube videos and podcasts like the one that we do. Are you surprised at this interest in those days that were like, you know, 30 years ago now? Are you surprised that people are still talking about it and still interested? Very. Uh, I don't think any of the... <laughs> I don't think the number of books that are going to be sold or articles that are going to be read are going to be that impressive in terms of book sales, let's put it that way. But I am really impressed that uh, publishers and editors uh, are so encouraged by the subject matter because they see what's happened to the video game category as a whole in the last 15 years, that they think anything related, including retro and including writing about the old days, is going to be of interest. So... uh, I am surprised. Yes, I am surprised. Uh, but I, I, I uh, in the last 20 years when I've been doing other projects and been basically semi-retired, uh, I was asked by someone to, uh, you know, find out what happened to the Epics library. And uh, I did find the Epics library and I was responsible for doing a deal uh, with some unknown company that decided to buy the hot Epics computer game titles. And I was really surprised, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when someone was interested in that. So my surprise continues with what's going on now. Uh, I'm delighted, but I'm surprised. And, uh, you know, the fact that you can walk into a, a drugstore uh, or a toy store at Christmas time and have been able to in the last three or four years and buy uh, a replica 2600 or ColecoVision or Sega system, you know, for as little as twenty nine ninety five, with a chip in it that allows you to play thirty or forty, you know, built in games. It's a great value. Uh, it amazes me that uh, you know people want to do it because the graphics, of course, are going to be ancient graphics in a lot of cases. Even though I know they're being modernized on the Sega stuff, but you know, I'm interested. I'm surprised. I'm delighted. I always think it's kind of like music, really. I mean, you kind of remember the music that you listened to as a teenager or a kid really fondly, I guess. It's probably part of that, you know, the the nostalgia factor comes in, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I'm a retro guy when it comes to vintage clothing. I I have a collection of military, militaria, uniforms, uh, uh, basically uniforms and stuff 
going back to World War One into the present. I like older cars. I don't buy a car unless it's at least 15 years old. I love my, uh, to your behest, I love the uh, Jaguar S-Type 2002 I have because it's got the wonderful Jaguar grill from back in the uh, you know 60s. And um, so uh, I love vintage and I like retro myself. Old Ralph Lauren, you know, herringbone tweed, old Harris tweed, British stuff. I'd be thrown out of, you know, any get together from video gamers who are, uh, you know, between the ages of 20 and 35 <laughs> because I, because I'm not wearing the black shoes, the black jeans, the black shirt. And uh, but I, I like retro and I, I love to see what's happening. You're one of us, Michael. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you are, too. Well, it's been so interesting getting your stories about, you know, the, these companies that shaped our childhood and these incredible systems. So thank you so much for being our guest this week. It's been amazing getting your stories. My pleasure, Dan. I'll, uh, I'll uh, unfortunately, I haven't heard your podcast before, but I'm definitely going to uh, check it out now.